G'day world and welcome to episode 6 I believe of the Bloke Pod. Apologies for the bit of a break and uh, since our last uh, episode we've sort of been you know doing the doing the US circuit and everything, meeting with Oprah and Jerry Springer and all those sorts of things. You know. yeah, you Our know. celebrities just gotten quite out of hand. Yeah, we're, we're, ne- we're nearing double digits That's these right. days. It's yeah. quite impressive. I've got a good feeling about today, Dan. I, I just, I just yeah. feel that today might be one of our best half dozen podcasts we've ever done. I think, yeah, I think yeah. I've thought that about all of our podcasts so far, actually, <laughs> and nothing's changed yet. So let's, let's keep the vibe going. But That's right. Look, straight into it. There's a lot more angst than usual for me, which, you know, is, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a lot of angst, yeah, yeah. right there. In you know, the last few years I'd always said, I'm not going to join Dream Team and AFL Fantasy Teams because it, it will just take over my life. <laughs> having joined as, up, it, as, as it's wont to do, yeah. Yes. Having joined up this year and having spent like 25 hours this week crunching the numbers, doing stats, modelling and, you know, creating algorithms and Excel macros and everything like that, I can honestly say that, yeah, I, I don't actually know how I was able to function in the world b- before this happened. <laughs> well, but, I'm sure you were functioning. Oh. Yes, and... Uh, that yeah, would, William's, that, uh, William's agreeing with me. Yeah, that, that, would, be, uh, that would be my dog, Billy, who's, uh, who's decided it's time to contribute. He's, he's put a little bit of input into the bloke pod so far, but... Uh, that's you might have, you might have heard him briefly on uh, on the last on the last one, but Billy Billy's not really a dream team fan. So well, look, neither am I so far today because after running all my modelling and everything like that, I decided you know what I'm going to bring in Matthew Boyd because he's due for an absolute cracker. They're playing against GWS. I was tossing up between him and Griffin. Went with Boyd. And to half-time, bloody Griffin has had a score of 83 so far. 26 disposals in the first half. And, yes, there's that combined with the fact that last night I tipped Fremantle because it was the Anzac Day game. And I have a rule that I won't ever change my tip once it's been entered. And, of course, Aaron Sanderlands was a late withdrawal late in the week after I put my tips in. But I thought, no, 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 I'm not going to change my tips. So yeah, that, that burned me as well. I think he had uh, 22 teammates during the third quarter there as well. Uh, yeah. they, I think they scored a goal with about 20 seconds to go. It was a bit, the only thing they managed to do in the entire third quarter. So, yeah. and, and I mean, as it's turned out, that's cost them the game. Mm. So, And then the last one, and this one hurts most of all because I was looking at my two Ruckman in my team, Hampson and Giles, and I was like, you know what? Giles is actually stepping up this year, and Hampson's been shit. So that's it. I'm going to go with Hampson. But so far, Giles has done absolutely bugger all in this game, and I've got him sitting on my bench. I've got... Sorry, I've got him on the on the ground and Hampson sitting on the bench. So just pretty much, yeah, a, a series of niggling frustrations that have really just served to give me the shit so far this weekend. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm in, I'm in an interesting dream team spot at a... We'll, uh, the next podcast, I can probably update people on this, but in my league, I'm actually up against Dr. Dream Team this week, and uh, Ron Hargrave being a late omission is not going to help Yes, that too was much. the other thing. I had him as well. Uh, God. But uh, he's got Boyd as captain, but he, he's he got Gary Ablett and was too stubborn to remove him from his, from his team, so mm. I reckon I've got a little bit of a jump on him. Uh, as of... Uh, 
all my day, all my guys on Anzac Day, he didn't have any play from memory. All my guys on Anzac Day performed really well. So I've jumped out to a, to an early lead against him. So I'm hoping that I can sustain that for the rest of the way. And mm. yeah, how good would it be to be sitting here saying, "Who's his drop, Doctor Dream Team drop kick?" Because they don't know jack shit. Come and get the advice from me. Uh, yeah. So yeah, bigger. In, in fairness, I do have to say I think it's the karmic forces realigning themselves because last week I sort of was up against everyone who had Carazzo in their side who was that injured like in the first minute and Birchall who was a late withdrawal against West Coast and stuff like that so I certainly got a lot of favours last week but yeah this week from a tipping perspective from a dream team perspective everything it's just yeah all gone to crap so it's bloody frustrating. Geez. So, you, so you're calling, are you calling yourself out for what the hell is you thinking right now? Or? Yes, I am. Right, I have to right. say, yep. Tipping, oh, tipping Fremantle, leaving yeah. Hampson on the bench. You know, every, everything that can go wrong has gone wrong so far this okay, week. Okay, I'm going to hijack your segment, and uh, I want to. I want to go with the uh, the basketball player. Formerly known as Ron Artest, currently known as Meta World Peace. I was going to say, it's almost been a dream team equivalent of copping an elbow to the ear. <laughs> yeah, Meta World Peace style. I mean, I'm going to call him out for, for three reasons. The first one, why the hell did he change his name to Meta World Peace? Considering his history as well, this is the guy who got suspended for, I think it was 70-something games seven years ago for charging into the stands and... You know, like carnage on some of the people in Detroit. Uh, first and foremost, I think that that's a, that's a good reason to call him out. Secondly, because it meant that all the pun writers got to say things like "world peace suspended," <laughs> uh, you know, which is never good Heavy for anybody. Or something yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. Like, world peace. Is, I mean, come on, man. But uh, the incident itself, I mean, it was it was blatant. It was unnecessary. He's bloody lucky to only get seven games, to be perfectly honest, as a suspension. Having said that, it's pretty much going to rule him out of the first round of the playoffs, which start tomorrow. One positive I can say is that it has provided one of the most epic super slow-mos of all time (laughs) on the YouTube. If you haven't seen the YouTube clip, jump till there's about 20 seconds left and, yeah. There's probably about 17 different versions of the YouTube clip up these days and... There's probably, you know, the, the, one of the great things about the NBA, uh, NBA coverage is, is that you get all the local media covering the games as well. So you get the commentary spliced with incredible bias if you find the right clips. And this is a good example of one that's probably worth watching with the, uh, with the Oklahoma City team covering it because they go off. <laughs> so, Ron, so, yes, the, uh, the basketball formerly known as Ron Artest, currently known as Metal World Peace. Uh, and, and with regards to with the that album, name as well? Yeah, well like, how, how did he come up with that? He got in for so many different reasons. I mean, World Peace, that would at least yeah. sort of make sense because it's a two-word well, statement. There's a metal at yeah. the front of it. Well, I mean, yeah. and it, it just looks ridiculous on his jersey too. They've got World Peace 15 and it's like, <laughs> what the hell? And it, it is interesting because most of the commentators have just given up calling him that and have referred it back to Ron Artest anyway, so... Yeah. Yeah, Ron is a, is a bizarre one. and well, uh, It could be worse that they could have a metal world on his jumper, oh, I suppose. So. Oh, yeah. we'll, we'll call him out this week for, uh, for what the hell is he thinking. Uh, look, the other obvious one is... Well, I think there's two. It's the uh, 25-year-old uh, umpire in the 
A-League Grand Final. Oh, oh, oh. How could I forget about that? It has been a long time since, uh, since it's, yeah, Perth is still in mourning, not only from the A-League, but also mm. from the basketball. It's been a it's been a rough week to be a uh, professional team in Perth so far. Yeah, indeed. But for me, the what the hell were they thinking actually goes to the FFA. For starters, here's the final of the season, and we're going to pick a 25-year-old who's currently dating uh, one of the staffers at the Brisbane Roar. So that's the first bit. But then the second bit is to come out the day after the game and say that the ref actually got it right in a desperate attempt not to badmouth their own product. I mean, their credibility is always going to have taken a hit, but for them to sort of take the stand that, oh, actually, we're going we're gonna to back him in like that, yeah, they're making it worse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a ridiculous decision, you know, and... It was very, very interesting. I was really impressed with uh, Ian Ferguson after the game, really taking the high road when it would have been very, very easy. I think that the thing that made it even more ridiculous was them compounding their fuck-up even further by presenting the best on ground oh, to yeah, the wrong person. Is. Well, I suppose um, they figured, look, it's, it's a complete yeah. train wreck. We may as well yeah. go <laughs> all the way with well this. Might as well go down in flames. Yeah. But, I mean, you have, to, you have to wonder if Clyde Palmer and Nathan Tickler just may well have been up. on yeah, to something. Yeah, they're just too. watching that going, well... <laughs> You beauty. Yeah. I, mean, we te- I couldn't be happier with how that went. It is interesting. We did tee off on Clive Palmer, but maybe we were in the wrong yeah. here. So, yeah. I it was mean, the lesser of two evils at the very yeah. least. So, uh, and yeah, on that note, a shout out to the uh, patrons at the Elephant and Wheelbarrow pub who actually, <laughs> yeah, their anger exploded oh, out into, a, into a, like a brawl on the street yeah. after the game. Yeah. Or oh, what's left of it. Yeah. So, so th- they've just encapsulated the, the feelings of the state. So, yeah. God bless you, drinkers. Yeah, and nah, we're still, uh, I guess we're all from the, uh, from the Wildcats members like myself still recovering from the immense highs from... Friday last week where Sean Redditch absolutely destroyed CJ Bruton's last second shot to CJ Bruton returning the (laughs) favour with hitting two dagger threes in the last minute and a half to beat the Wildcats in the uh, the game three and bring the championship forward. The scary thing about CJ, CJ's my age. and, and I, if for those listeners who don't know, that's that's bloody old. Hey, yeah, right. that's yeah. He's uh, yeah, he's thirty six, <laughs> and uh, a thirty six year old. You sure, you want to go advertising your age? Well, like I'm didn't, didn't bloody old do a good enough job? Wow. Well, <laughs> we have to put it into context, I guess. Uh, thirty. He uh, yeah won the MVP of the finals, which you know at thirty six. Yeah. I think they said it's his uh, it's his fifth championship, and in in elimination games uh, he's six and zero, which is uh, yeah that's uh, it tells you a lot about him. He's, uh, and you know on the back of that, and you know speaking of Australian point guards, Paddy Mills having an exceptional game yesterday for San Antonio. He uh, yeah. picked up by San Antonio. 34 points and 12 assists, uh, Australian high in points in the NBA. So, nice. admittedly, playing against the team that only was playing, who actually only used seven fit players, and San Antonio themselves resting uh, Ginobili, Parker, Tim Duncan, and and, Duncan. Da- and Danny oh. and Danny Green for the most part of the game as well, with the playoffs coming up. But still, 30. You know, anyone who scores 30 points in an NBA game can play. Well, well yeah. look with. Bogut out now. It's pretty bloody important that Mills is, yeah, running into some sort of form before the Olympics, you'd have to well, say. Well, that's, that's certainly right. I mean, Talk about the one-two sucker punch for our basketball teams, eh? 
first well, um, yeah. Penny... Yeah, Taylor. Taylor, that's yeah. one. Penny Taylor and Andrew Bogut, you know, within well, a few days of each other. Also, out for the also compounded with uh, Australian-born Kyrie Irving, who was the number one pick in the NBA last year, deciding who had been tossing and turning, deciding whether he wanted to play for Australia and the US, finally deciding that he, w- he wanted to play for the United States. So does he realise that means that he's going to be on a team with, like, Kobe Bryant and... And you know, well, he won't the be, rest of the Miami Hayes, he, yeah, the Miami Hayes. Yeah, well, like, he he picks them seriously. Well, he won't make the team this time around, but in four years' time, the way he's played this year, he'll win Rookie of the Year. So you know, great news for Australia. We're represented in some form there, but um, he, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting decision. He would have been not only would he have been a walk-up start for our team, he would have been our best player. Um, he's punting better on, than Mills. Better than Mills. He's better than Mills. Oh, yeah, wow. absolutely. He's he's probably one of the five best point guards in the NBA right now, um, which is saying something. And he's turned his back on the green and gold. He says, but admittedly, you know, he's an American. He's lived most of his life there. He was born in Australia and was only here for two years. But that's, that's long enough, though. Yeah, that's in all honesty. Enough. Come on. Well, I mean, when you when you nicknaming yourself the Australian Assassin as well, I mean, uh, oh, yes, that, that's it. Would have been cool. a great. It would have been a tremendous. I mean, in all seriousness, I can understand his decision. It would have been a tremendous coup for the Australian team to to get him on board. But um, that's the. Uh, I guess that's the rub, the rub on that. So mm. you know we. With with Kyrie and if we'd have fit Andrew Bogut, we we probably would have been an outside chance in a medal. Um, yep. Yeah, no chance now. You know, yeah. we're you know at best we're probably about seventh or eighth best team. Yeah, I mean it, it will be interesting. I I made an earlier call. I'm not convinced the US are lay down the zeros for the gold and Spain in particular have a have a good chance to beat them. Although with Ricky Rubio down with an ACL, it probably makes it a little bit more difficult for them, but Spain have got... What's with all these basketballers getting injured right before the Olympics? Well, the NBA-wise, NBA the issue with that is they've played a shortened season this year, 66 games condensed over over four months instead of what's normally six or seven, mm. 82 over seven, so there's been a lot of a lot of teams playing ridiculous things like seven games in nine days, which they're just not used to. So mm. that's that's been a pretty significant contributing factor. Well, so, you did bring up, uh, yeah, age sort of not being a factor before for CJ. And one of the guys I want to give my uh, sort of wrap of the week to is Shivnarayan Chandapur, who yeah, went who, past 10,000 runs this week uh, at an average of just over 50. Um, and pretty much single-handedly ensured that the West Indies um, stayed in that series from start to finish. I mean, I'm not sure what the exact figures were, but I noticed in this test finished yesterday, he was top scorer in both innings there, and I know he was top scorer in at least two of the other four innings that they had throughout the series. And, yeah, it's good to see someone who's basically, you know, the last guy who'd ever get picked for the IPL. (laughs) And, yeah, has no sort of of sluggish mentality sort of thing. It's good to see there's still a place for that sort of player in in the test arena. Yeah, it's just a little bit unfortunate that they don't really have too many other guys willing to take his lead. Mm. Um, You know, we've seen a bit of... uh, We've seen a bit with... Uh, Darren Bravo, who yep. looks like he's going to be a pretty exciting talent for them mm. moving forward, but 
outside of him, uh, it's, it's really difficult to see what's coming through. I mean, give give the West Indies a bit of credit. I watched a lot of the series actually, as mm. it turned out, and yep. they fought, they fought hard. They, they were, scrapped. They, yeah, that, the words. yeah, that's a, yeah, good way to describe it. They were mm. they were clearly outclassed for yeah. pretty much the entire the entire series and. The class ended up, you know, the cream rose to the top, but they fought their way through really, really hard. And, and you would have to say it's not every day that a team would lose a three-match series but have two guys who've taken ten wicket hauls <laughs> and yeah. a batsman who's comfortably uh, tops the runs. Well, yeah, without, without the other team having a, a top-six player make a century, mm. for yeah. instance... Um, I mean, once again, the the Australian teams, um, you know, top and middle order struggling to put runs on. Yeah, it's an interesting one for the Aussies. I think no one didn't contribute, yeah. if that makes sense. I mean, even Brad Haddon, you can say. <laughs> Williams heard me say the word Brad Haddon, and that's got him fired up. But yeah. His contribution was uh, stepping aside and letting Matthew Wade come in. Um, yeah, he's a big fan of Matthew Wade. Billy. He, uh, he got very <laughs> yeah. He got he got very excited the other night when he uh, when he brought up triple digits. Yeah. And he was uh, barking. See, there he goes again. Yeah. Reminding him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, with the next Test match being against the best bowling attack in the world right now in South Africa, you've really got to worry about how our batting lineup is going to go against Stain, Philander, and Morkel. Yeah, so... Right now, you could say we've got Sid Vicious, Hilfie, Harris, Pattinson, Stark, Cummins to come back in, Watson, Clarky, Lyon, Beer. We've got wicket-taking options just coming out of every orifice. But in terms of batting depth, the guys we've got in the side are looking average at best. And to be perfectly honest, if Ricky Ponting announced his retirement tomorrow, which he could do, he's 37 and there's a six-month gap till the next match, The whoever got selected to replace him would be thoroughly undeserving of, of a baggy green. You'd yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's exactly right. That's the I mean, that's the problem is just that whilst, whilst the guys themselves have been decidedly average, who's pushing up? Yeah, Marsh, Hughes, Kawaja have all done their selection chances. Absolutely really? no favours whatsoever. Yeah, so. I mean, if you get the chance to look at it, uh, Chris Rogers wrote an article this yes. week on Cricket Info, yep. which was really, mm. really insightful, talking about, I guess, the these these young, yeah, these young Australian batsmen and all their technical deficiencies. And um, yeah, it was very interesting to uh, to get his insights on that. Rogers is a very technically sound player himself, who's to be honest, has unfortunately probably been born five or six years too early. Oh, and look, in fairness, you'd have to say his willingness to come out and badmouth all these other players. Probably you could read a lot into why he hasn't been selected for more than one test. That's, that's what I have heard, is that, yeah, the, the off-field sort of, you know, what he brings to the table wasn't exactly uh, counting in his favour. But certainly, it was a, you know, for an article written by a current player... He was, yeah, very insightful, spot on the money. And, yeah, yeah. it's it's a... It's well, I mean, that's the thing. It's a situation for Australia. I always... I mean, I always... I don't always read too much in... Whilst those things are true, like, if... In terms of what you bring to the table as part of the team, and Billy will probably back me up on this since he's come over to my feet right now. Um, if, you're, if you're stating the truth, who gives a shit? You know, that's my always my belief on that stuff. Well, I'd say Hughes, Kawaja, and <laughs> Marsh, Marsh well, at this stage, but 
I mean, yeah, I, I, I thought for a while that, um, you know, Phil Hughes' name was, uh, it, it, you know, his, uh, he'd, ha- he'd hyphenated his surname and it was Hugh, Hugh C. Guptill B. Martin. And <laughs> well, to, to quote Kerry O'Keefe, if yeah. Phil Hughes cuts himself shaving tomorrow, then, then uh, yeah. Guptill will leap out of the medicine cabinet with a Band-Aid. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah. Um, yeah, he'd catch any nicks that yeah. uh, that Phil Hughes managed to have, and Kawaj is an interesting one. I think he'll he'll actually, I, I like him. I think he's got a couple of deficiencies, but he strikes me as the type of guy who will work hard to address those. Marsh's, yeah, Marsh showed so much early on, and he just completely lost his way, unfortunately. But, but he's, showing, honest, he's showing some form in the T20s at the moment, which is good to see. But To be honest, Marsh's state form probably did suggest that that was likely to happen. He was very much in the Marcus North sort of feast or famine mould. Yeah. Although, yeah, the selectors didn't do him any favours this summer. No, they no. didn't. That's that's true. They basically brought him in on the back mm. of one T20 match. I guess, I guess that's what we're saying, though, is that yes. they were forced to do that because there's no one else yeah. who's looking like a credible alternative. Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing. Who is, who's going to be the uh, the next great... I mean, you look at it from this perspective, Ponting and Hussey are going to be the two who go next. Who's going to be the next great Australian middle-order batsman? Michael Clark. <laughs> well, that's not already but, yeah, it, yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, that is the other thing I really do like about Matthew Wade. The biggest thing about him is that he's young. He's 24, so yeah. we're getting in a young debutant, which means he's got a 10-year career in front of him, whereas a lot of the guys on the fringes at the moment, if Ponting and Hussey both go out, the guys we are bringing in, they'll probably only be good for a handful of years. I mean, yeah. someone like um, Klinger... He's probably quite close to the top of the pile at this stage, but yeah, do you want to pick someone like that who's got maybe three years left? In How old is he? He's, he's 30 thirty-two. Yeah, from memory. Yeah, I mean, this is this. These are the decisions they have. It's you know, I mean, you look at Peter Forrest as the guy who they're clearly trying to groom into mm. that role. And that, I mean, has it really come to this where someone averaging low to mid thirties at state level is? Is well, suddenly being groomed. Some, for somebody who, well, somebody who couldn't make the New South Wales team all of a sudden is mm. relevant. Yeah, he's one year removed from a move from New South Wales to Queensland, and he's good enough to play for Australia. Or, mm. I mean, well, in fairness, that's probably why he's still close enough to playing for New South Wales to <laughs> yeah. have that count in his favour. I mean, Callum Ferguson is no. someone who, again, I mean, they were really counting on him and his kicking on and and sort of establishing himself as the next big thing. But, I mean, he's been crueled by injuries. Yeah, I mean, he copped his knee injury at the Mm. worst time and he's never really been the same Mm. since. It's a very unique situation for Australian cricket, I think, because at any stage in our history, I think you'd find there were always batsmen coming through. I mean, the great bowlers... Quite few and far between, but in any particular um, time period, there always would have been. There's a been, yeah, there's always teams. been that, yeah, that precocious talent coming mm. through the the Damien, Ooh. the Damien Martin, the Ricky mm. Ponting, the War Brothers. Yeah. Um, it's it's the been, Michael Clarks, yeah, yeah, the Michael Clark as well, who's probably one. the most yeah. recent one. Yeah, that's yeah, a, it's a really good example of that. But mm. I mean, that's that's the thing. It's um, we're not really we're not really seeing those guys jumping up and yeah. I mean Liam Davis is probably 
the one who's yeah sort of actually <laughs> had a good season this year. So hopefully, if he continues that he's, game next year, he's also in his late twenties from memory, isn't he? So he's been around mm. the scene for a while too. It's probably more the Marcus Harris type guys that they're the most interested in seeing what's happening with them. Yeah, there's a young. Uh, What's his name? There's a young New South Wales opening batsman. Nick well. Madden? Yes, that's the one. Yeah. Nick without the K. Yeah. Who, um, Mark War in particular, had very big raps on him. And he's someone who, he looks young enough. Yeah. Hopefully he, he's got well, time I to I, I don't think he, I don't know if he's, t- I don't think he's even turned 20 yet. Yeah. That's how young he is. I mean, if you're cracking into the New South Wales state team at 18 years old, you've obviously got a bit of ability. Hmm. Even yeah. if it's because even if three quarters, yeah. Even, <laughs> even if it means, even if it is because three quarters of the team are currently playing for Australia, it's uh, that that situation normal for New South Wales. Well, yeah, that's right, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's he's one. Chris Wynn really oh. dropped away this year. He was somebody who they'd been talking up a lot as well. Yeah, I, I, I said the I know. Cupboard's I, looking pretty bare. I said I said this on a previous podcast. I reckon that the next the next one who's really who's got. All the talent in the world and looks like he's going to jump up sometime soon to Mitch Marsh. Marsh yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've there's a I've watched enough of him now to really feel that he's got he's got what it takes. Mm. I just hope that he's not as mentally fragile as his brothers seem to be this this past year. And I'd say that he strikes me being. Favor. I think he's he, a little bit tougher. He, he strikes me as being a little bit tougher than his brother. <laughs> More important. Yes, Billy. Do you agree with that? I yes. think by comparison to his brother, he's, he's more of a sort of happy-go-lucky sort of you know yeah. character who I guess won't is less likely to be get bogged down by a, a loss of form the way Sean Marsh. Yeah, I mean that, that's true. Something when you actually see his Twitter, he's actually pretty jovial at <laughs> the best yeah. of times, which, which, which is a dangerous attitude to have with cricket Australia lurking. Yeah. <laughs> but all credit to him. But uh, yeah, but I mean that's. The, I think that that was the thing that they said they liked having him around the. Um, he was around the team for the 2020s and the one day is in in South Africa and they liked mm. having him around the team because he was a little bit, little bit of a uh, free spirit so to speak. Yep, the next Doug Bollinger. <laughs> Although yeah. it didn't end that well for him either. No. So yeah. Well, he got he got shafted by the. Uh, the, uh, the, manage, the player management mm. side of things as well of ACA from a couple of years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a bit of trepidation, I'd say, looking forward to that series. Essentially, we have to hope that our bowlers can knock them over for 80 while they're knocking us over for 100. <laughs> well, let's hope we get past 47. Look, that's, that's, the, first, that's <laughs> the first target, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. I mean, they've got some, they, they certainly do have some interesting decisions to make with their batting. I'm not sure Watson's a long-term option at number three. I'd really like to see him chuck him at six. Oh, Clark has to bat at three. It's, yeah. it's very simple. It should be Clark, Ponting, Hussey, Watson. And yeah, you'd like to see your captain. You'd that. like to see... Well, I mean, that's the the problem is is that Clark at four is such a such an abysmal failure for them that they they obviously feel that Clark at three is going to have the same thing. It's a bit surprising because mm. Clark's got a very tight technique. So I think that was also that he was suffering from Ponting's shit ass form at the time. So I think he would have been better off actually coming in at three at that stage. Mm. I think it was more the implied pressure of having Ponting um, regularly fail above him. 
that sort of messed with his head at four. <laughs> and when you feast or famining with uh, Hughes and Watson at the start, you mm-hmm. kind of, um, you know, you, you, you're going to be potentially two for not many pretty quickly, aren't you? Mm-hmm. you know? well, I just think the biggest problem with Watson, though, is that is in six years of international cricket, he's made three centuries. Now, how can you want someone like that coming in first drop? You know, mm. The guy batting at number three should be the sort of guy who every now and then can pop up and make like a 150 and basically bat the team to victory. Well, what, the, Watson's never going to do that. The problem I have with Watson is uh, I actually think that Watson's more valuable to the team as a bowler right now. Oh, w- without question. He, um, is, he is an outstanding bowler now. He's probably... <laughs> yes. <laughs> probably the biggest improver over the last five years, you'd say in terms of any facet of anyone's game would be Shane Watson's bowling because he used to be garbage. He used to bowl it at 140, didn't move it off the pitch, didn't move it in the air, whereas now he bowls it at 125 to 130, moves it off the pitch, moves it in the air, and, yeah, he is a, he's a genuinely threatening uh, sort of, I guess, third-change bowler to have up his sleeve. And he's probably one of the better components of reverse swing going around these days too. Mm. Uh, which is also really important in a team when the when the ball gets sold, and I think that you know that that's part of it. it's it's part of the robbing Peter to pay Paul situation that the selectors have at the moment is just that unfortunately the quality of fast bowlers is so great that they're pretty much committing to going in three and one all the time when you could theoretically play two spinners in uh, in certain circumstances if you had that quality there. And use Watson as your third quick. Because I think for balance, three and two is a better way to go. I would argue, though, that in Michael Clark, they actually do have, I would almost say, the best spinner in Australia right now. He is a, he is a, a really like solid spin bowler to have up your sleeve, I reckon. When he's fit. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the, the issue with Clark is that Clark doesn't always want to bowl Clark. Mm. And I mean, well, they seem pretty committed to uh, giving Dave Warner a, uh, a run in that role as well. Mm. But I mean, if it comes to a choice of yeah, playing beer and losing quick, versus which Clark would be the decision the that they'd make at the moment. I'd, yeah. yeah, I'd go with Clark every yeah. single time. That's and that's kind of the uh, that's kind of the issue that they're they're facing is is that you know whilst we have a well, it's it's amazing to consider when. We've had Shane Warne, arguably the greatest spin bowler of all time. Arguably? Well, people, <laughs> arguably? In, people in Sri Lanka would argue it. I don't think anybody else would. Um, but uh, the, the spin talent is so bare. I mean, I, I, I still get the feeling that they're trying to ram Nathan Lyon down our throats. Oh, I think Nathan Lyon is actually a pretty decent bowler. The biggest problem he has, though, is that, quite simply, he's an off-spinner. Mm. And off-spinners, they're just never as much of a genuine wicket-taking option, unless they do happen to have an action which was based on a newspaper delivery man like Murray Leader does. Or Graham Swan. <laughs> Graham Swan's probably the mm. exception to that. He's, uh, but yeah. I mean, Graham, Graham Swan could turn it on cement, so... Mm. Yeah, Lyon, I, everything I see about Lyon actually... You know, there's nothing to not like about him. I think he's a very smart, savvy bowler. He uses his angles well. He comes around the wicket. He tosses it up. He gives it flight and that. I just think his almost natural stock delivery, spinning into the right-handers, yeah, it's just not as much of a wicket-taking threat. Yeah. 
That's right. And I, I think that that's... Which again counts in Clarkie's favour. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. I, I, I mean, that's the thing. I always, I've always felt that you, the better ways to, to go... I mean, it's, it's why you don't see so many Chinaman bowlers around these days. And it's why you see that there haven't been... Over the history of cricket, there haven't been overly successful Chinaman bowlers, apart from the fact that it's a really tough thing to do. Better? I'll reiterate what I just <laughs> said. Um, is that I think that moving the ball away from the right-hander is generally more damaging than uh, it actually is. Uh, you know, left-handers, and the left-hander side of things as well, left-handers are just so conditioned to the ball going part, coming mm. across them yeah. that your, your leg spinners and your left-arm orthodox spinners generally have more success than uh, than the other people do. Sorry, Dad, Dad's distracted because uh, uh, his, yeah. his favourite person... Jamie Rogers from TAB Sportsbet has just come up on the screen. Why? Why do they have to start every ad with that? I yeah, yeah. I don't get it. There's something just there's just something very something very wrong, wrong apparently. There's really something there's aggravating about there's that something wrong about it. Not just the fact that she spells Jamie J A I M E E, but um, <laughs> I think that's the least of it. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. But. Uh, uh, unfortunately, my uh, for those of you who have never heard her, unfortunately, my my um, impersonation of her that I did then was pretty close to oh, the mark. It's yeah. her voice is incredibly high Probably and just about as irritating. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> which, okay, is, which, is well. yeah. Yeah. which is which is the whole point. Which is the whole point of uh, said impersonation at this point in time. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, look, moving on to a, another topic altogether. One of the other guys I wanted to give a big rap to this week was. Rafa Nadal, to win eight, the Monte Carlo event eight years in a row, which is something that no other player has ever done in the history of tennis. That's, yeah, that, that's... To, to even be able to compete in it each year, you know, without having an injury or anything like that... Well, I mean, he's, he probably has... Win it eight years in a row. I mean, in his defence, he probably has competed in it with injury because mm. he's been struggling the last couple of years, hasn't he? Yeah. At some stage. But, yeah, not yeah, eight, eight, mm. winning something eight times back-to-back in itself is yeah, in incredible. Sport. Yeah, yeah. It's very impressive. And in particular, it was good to see him smack down Djokovic after... Well, it would have been Djokovic's eighth win in a row against Nadal, actually, had Djokovic won. But Nadal, yeah, back on his clay... <laughs> Yeah. Yep. Billy really knows what I'm talking yeah. about. Where I'd argue he's probably, in terms of any player on any surface, Nadal on clay is the greatest of all time. I'd say as yeah. an all-round player, That's... Labor is the best. But in terms of Nadal on clay, Ball he go... trumps anyone else Ball on, on, grass? on any surface. Well, you could say Sampras or Federer on grass, yeah. but I'd still plump for Nadal on clay. So hopefully he can um, back that up by yeah smacking everyone around on the red dirt um, in one month's time again at the French Open. So we better a, uh, a shout out to uh, Bayern Munich and Chelsea as well, which amazing amazing events with the Champions League this week. If you told me at the start of the week that uh, given that we knew that Real Madrid and Barcelona were going to be in the in the final four already mm. and that they weren't playing each other I would have said Real Madrid Barcelona final it's write it down right now very safely and not only did one of them go down both of them went down and I think in particular the Chelsea performance I mean mm. I had always picked Bayern Munich as a potential dark horse because I think in in, um, well, I mean, they got, the, they got there, what, two years ago? 
Yes, and lost two years ago. Yeah, they lost it into yeah. Yeah, I I remember watching that game from a uh, from an English pub (laughs) while I was uh, while I was holidaying in London a couple of years ago. Yeah, that they sort of you looked at them on paper and you thought there's enough sort of star quality up forward Mm. that they could potentially jag a win, but for Chelsea to knock off Barcelona at home, that. Well, two nil, two nil down, mm. and a man down as well. Yeah. Um, to to come back and win that was was very impressive. Yeah. yeah. yeah so it's, still, I'd say the the tournament needed a bit of a shot in the arm after the quarter final stage, which you know you do like to see the fairy tale story of um of uh, what was what was the team's name the the team with like a ten million euro dollar budget who got through to the the quarter finals. It did mean that yeah that stage was. Very, very predictable. We knew after the first league exactly which four teams would be going through. But, yeah, the semi-final stage certainly, certainly made up for that and then some. And you'd have to say Bayern Munich, you you won't get a better chance to win, yeah. to win a Champions League title. They've yeah, that's right. A home, a, a, home, a home game against Chelsea who will have some of their key players the out, out yeah. through suspension. So, uh, honestly, how would Manchester City and Manchester United feel? Chelsea have, what, you know, 10 points, 15 points back on them in the EPL. Yeah, and yet, yeah. they couldn't even make it through to the knockout stage of the, yeah. <laughs> of the Champions League. With yeah, Chelsea all the way through to the final. Yeah, well, that's it. Well, but I guess it's just meant that they've concentrated their efforts on the Premiership. And mm. the, Manchester, the Manchester derby coming up may well decide who ends up winning that. Mm. Particularly with the uh, the four all Manchester United Everton game over the last week as mm. well, which was an incredible game in itself too. Yeah. So yeah, uh, it's some interesting interesting action in the round ball over <laughs> the last week, both locally and uh, internationally, as it's turned out. Yeah. But uh, and the last one I wanted to cover, I couldn't let this go without a mention. Moving on to a slightly smaller round ball. Um, shout out to two golfers, in fact. Um, Bubba Watson for winning the, uh, the the Masters at Augusta and oh, providing man. one of I, what I a cool guy he is. One man. of the great sporting moments, I think, when he sunk that putt and then almost just burst into tears straight away as everyone came out and hugged him. And that it's it really is good to see a sportsman like that who's not afraid of wearing yeah. his emotions on his sleeve. And uh, I think I, the crowd really responds to that. And too. I think it's amazing that a guy who's tamed what is arguably the toughest golf course in the world mm-hmm. is a guy who's never had a golf lesson in his life. Yeah. I mean, what is that? I mean, if you want to, if you ever wanted an indictment about skill and natural ability, <laughs> there it is, right there. This guy, can, I mean, this guy can absolutely crush a golf ball. And you know, playing Augusta, that's something that if you can, if you can control it, it certainly works to your advantage. So yeah, certainly, yeah. congratulations to him. And, and as yeah, I say, he he just strikes you from all the interviews and all that that I've seen. Absolute ripper guy. Yeah. Every every single person who had sent him a congratulations on Twitter, he'd responded to as well, which is just, yeah. just uh, it, you know, that's a great indictment of an individual. And uh, Yeah, I defy anyone who watched that uh, to, yeah, to not tear up a little bit when, when yeah, he yeah. just, it, it was almost just, yeah, like the floodgates opened after mm. he, he sunk that putt, and it was a, yeah, I think one of the, the, the greatest sporting moments I've seen in recent memory, just in terms of, yeah, the, the impact it had on viewers worldwide. But I do have to give a shout-out to the guy who I was cheering for from the second hole onwards, who's uh, 
Louis Good old West, Louis. Westhazen. It's actually, it's actually pronounced Westhazen. I've is done my right? research. Before there you go. This, so. Oh, Dad, yeah. bringing content to the show. Oh, this is that's good to right. see. You know, <laughs> episode six, it's a good time to stay. Yeah, somebody, somebody <laughs> needed to step up to the slope. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, with one of only four albatrosses ever to be, yeah. um, ever to be hit at Augusta. And, and yeah. I think he's the first on that hole. Um, mm. And the, the fact that he didn't go on to win it from there did seem well, to be a bit of an injustice. It's amazing because it, it's it's ridiculous to say that a two on a par five would do this to you, but it actually seemed to really take the momentum away from him. Uh, to be honest, throughout that last round, no one really wanted to win. Yes, yeah. there were um, you know the usual suspects in. Um, in Mickelson yeah. as well, and uh, Westwood, and even, um, oh, what's the Englishman's name, Poulter, made a, mm. a late run in that, but it almost seemed like every time someone was, sort of had the potential to step up and take it by the scruff of the neck, they, they actually choked the very next hole, and I thought it was quite ironic that Bubba Watson hit his tee shot on final playoff hole sort of 30 metres off to the side of the fairway, yeah. and, and keeping oh. with the vibe of the round... Um, West Hazen stepped up and hit his 50 metres off the, <laughs> off the side of the how, how great was Bubba Watson's recovery shot, though? I mean, if that wasn't one of the best shots you'll ever see. Mm. Oh, to get it out clean was one thing, but to put it where he did, it was just amazing. In particular, the spin and control yeah. he had on it from where he was hitting it from. And wasn't the, so much the shot itself, yeah, but the control well, on it after it landed. Yeah, that's yeah. it. You know, the torque that he needed to put on his body to pull that kind of shot off, yeah. just incredible. A very worthy winner, I think, certainly. Yeah, um, absolutely. Is the case, so yes. And I think potentially the first sportsman anywhere in the history of world sport to win a global event um, named Bubba. Yeah. <laughs> I'm prepared to be corrected on that, so... Yeah, well... <laughs> That's right, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty confident at this stage. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't... I'm trying to remember if Bubba Smith won a Super Bowl. I don't think he did. Um, yeah. Well, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> Bubba Smith, also more famously known as uh, his role as Hightower in all the Police Academy series. So, just... Uh, just just, just hitting you with some knowledge right there. That was nice. Yeah. So you, you're feeling threatened now. now yeah, that's right. Bring something to the table. Yeah, well, I'm, 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 I'm a little bit worried. So far during this podcast, I think I've been, uh, I've been outranked by both yourself and Billy. So yeah, I've, Which, uh, yeah, it's pretty much the lowest debts you can sink to as a podcast. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, what can you do? So, well, you can step up. <laughs> you well, can lift your game. <laughs> Challenge accepted. It's interesting. Uh, it's certainly, I think that this is the thing about this year. I'm surprised at how wide open it really seems. And it could well be that the team that gets hot early September is the team that wins it. And there's, there could be, you know, seven or eight realistic contenders right about now. Well, how big an advantage do West Coast currently have in that they've got a two-game jump on the three fellow preliminary finalists from last year in Geelong, Collingwood and Hawthorne? I think that they're going to need it. I know they'll need it, yeah, yeah. looking at their run home, but still, yeah, it's it's good to have that early on in the season, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's it's the classic fifth-day test match scenario whereby it works to your advantage having the runs on the board. Mm. And um, 15, 16 wins may well... I mean, last year, the Eagles uh, finishing fourth with uh, 17 wins. I mean, 
Seven eight might get you top spot this year. I, th- I think they had said, yeah, pretty much the top four teams last year. Any of those records would have usually been enough to potentially finish top. Well, yeah, the, well, Eagles in two thousand six won sixteen mm. and finished top. Um, so yeah, I mean that's exactly right. It's uh, but this year you there. There are some fairly yeah. big questions for all of the front runners, and to I think answer. that you know this is where North Melbourne and Adelaide, who who have the the good fortune of being able to play the expansion teams twice, mm. get a little bit of a jump on some of these mid range teams, and it's why I pinned them early on as being big improvers this year. It's, you could just see that working to their advantage. Yeah, it it really is an inequitable draw, isn't it, when you've got yeah. that sort of well, element in there? It's a fixture with the uh, emphasis on the word fix. There's ways that they could improve that, and they really need to look at it, but while while Demetrio's there and while the uh, the cash cow is uh, well and truly still getting milked, they're, uh, they're not, they're not going to change because they don't feel the need to. It's hard to see that ever changing, though, because... The TV rights are based on the, the number of games that there are per season, and with the current number of teams, they'd almost be better off trying to add another four teams in to at least make it a fair draw, and that everyone would play everyone else once. Because at the moment, I think Sydney are another team as well who finished, you know, I think sixth last year. In yeah. So they were, you know, fairly high up the ladder last year. They've now got, um, yeah, the double, the double heads up against GWS and. And Gold Coast this year, so it's unfortunately it's what we've come to expect from the AFL in terms of a, I guess like a logistical structure sort of thing. But, I mean, the, the less said about their website, the better. <laughs> um, the holding the ball rule interpretation, just God knows what's going on there. And well, and now this, there are just a lot of well, fundamental problems with. I'm, the I'm amazed okay. with some of the things like. Getting into specifics at this stage, but the deliberate out-of-bounds rule is something that seems to be conveniently applied as well. You see some ridiculous ones not paid. I don't have too many issues with the ones that they generally do pay, because most of the ones that they pay are actually there. Mm. But there are some terrible ones that they don't pay. And uh, there was an example in the the Geelong-Richmond game Mm. in the weekend just gone, where Matthew Stokes had the ball, had no teammates in front of him, so he just thumped it 50 metres down the line, one bounce and out, and it wasn't paid. Yeah. And you can't tell me that his intention wasn't to get the ball out of bounds, and if that's what the rule is, then that should be getting paid. Yeah. It's that simple. There was a similar one with Dustin Fletcher, I think, where the, the commentators almost joked that the umpire sort of looked right at him, saw who it was, and... Decided, oh look, we'll let him have that one because it's his three, three fiftieth this week. But, yeah, so yeah, yeah uh, you, all you all you want from officiating is consistency. Uh, and, in you know, fairness, though, there has to be that like the support from the rules themselves, like the yeah. emphasis on interpretation, and I guess this sort of idea that the rules are sort of fluid I mean, and can change from week to week. This, this, yeah, that's exactly right. There's no question that this, the AFL is the hardest, I reckon it's the hardest game in the world to officiate. It really is mm. because it's not only that the rules themselves are, are relatively ambiguous, it's that the, the interp- they, they always have hot points of interpretation which yeah. seem to change by the week. I mean, mm. I hate being a player. I mean... You, what you're getting away with one week, you're not able to get away with the next. Mm. It's it's just amazing. I don't know how they are able to adapt and cope. It is, I guess, a very big question mark over the credibility of the AFL as a sport, I'd say. It's just the way in which 
the, the way the game's played today is can be completely, well, umpired at least, can be completely different from how it was umpired two weeks ago and is definitely different from how it was umpired two years and five years and ago. And, I mean, I, I'd argue that it's one of the more difficult things... There's potentially one of the things that stops it from being able to be ported into a lot of these overseas mm. locations. It's very, very interesting. Um, at my work at the moment, we've recently had a person join us who's who's come from from Egypt via India, and he's he's getting into the game now. But he, I've said, you know, having discussions with him about him trying to interpret what's what's actually going on in the rules and regulations, and he's. Uh, He's really finding it difficult to come to terms with these things. And, you know, if you're, if you're dropping it into a new position, a new location, people need to be able to understand exactly what's going on. Well, I think with any sport in general, if you look at any sport, one of the basic rules is, well, sorry, principles is that the rules are set up, they're established, and with some, you know, a few exceptions, those rules generally remain the same yeah. throughout the course of the sport. Some, like the... Um, the hockey offside rule do get changed, but when that does happen, it's basically universally lauded as improving the game. Whereas Demetrio and the the rest of the the AFL HQ team seem to um, have the idea that the rules are you know theirs to be tinkered with as they see fit and yeah modified whenever and however they. Well, are. I mean, the thing that worries me about it is that the the they make rule changes to be reactive to tactics. The thing about tactics is tactics will continually evolve over time. Mm. And the, the thing that you're creating a rule to stop would have naturally have been stopped by things that have moved as a consequence of other things going on. Yeah. And the perfect example of that is the whole issue of flooding in many respects. It's taken on a, a completely different structure now with zoning and that. And it used to be that five or six years ago, you'd never kick the ball long to a contest. These days, it's the only way to see, it seems to be that you move the ball. So, mm. yeah. I mean, the big difference you notice there is that I can't think of any instances recently where you would find more than two pairs of players in the half of the ground where the ball currently isn't, if that makes any sense yeah. at all. So if the ball's in one forward pocket... Yeah, you'd be amazed to see more than two players in the other half of the ground. Whereas, you know, traditionally there was the, the structure of you've got your forwards and your backs and they stay... In well, that, I mean, it, there's also traditionally you've, you've got your man and you're running with him wherever he goes throughout the course mm. of the day. That's no longer the way that the game's played. It's that you 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 mm. protect a certain part of the ground. You have a man, but you kind of loosely follow that man. I think it's more just everyone follows the ball. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's yeah. I mean, it, their concern is that it looks more and more like a rugby scrum, and mm. particularly when the weather's when the weather's wet, that's that's what the game in, in, inevitably. Or if you're playing Sydney, invariably <laughs> that's what the game turns into. Yeah, thanks, Paul Rose. You 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 know a constant bite on the game is you needing to put 30 men around the ball. But I think the way they're trying to address and remedy that is actually a really ineffective one because basically they've said a lot of the holding the ball, you know, to the letter of the law, those decisions aren't paid anymore. And, yeah, they've tried to completely change the way in which stoppages and holding the ball decisions are, are umpired, whereas yeah. I think having a, a rule such as at any stage there have to be at least four pairs of players in you know, in each, or say three pairs of players in each forward 50 at each time, mm. that straight away there would mean there are six less players to potentially well, form a scrum. I mean, they, they, 
they've kind of got around that issue by saying what we're going to do instead is, you know, as long as the ball's moving forward, we're going to, we're going to, you know, I mean, it's, it's brought in, it's this, this whole issue of any, anything that involves you holding a ball on one hand and somehow hitting it (laughs) is now deemed an acceptable disposal. Yeah. So what that means is that basically the rules as you read them are actually no longer applied. Like the legal disposal rule, if you're caught in a tackle having to make a legal disposal, that's there, you know, in, to the letter of the law, that's there in the rules, but they just don't apply that now. What, what's your take on instant reply with regards to goal-line decisions at the moment? Look, you know me, I'm never really in favour of any sort of technology in any sport. The biggest concern for me is always the, um, the delay and the potential for people to just be sitting there waiting for, you know, 90 seconds, two minutes while they go over every single angle and every single replay possible. I know a lot of people say it's so critical to get the decision right, given, you know, how much is riding on on sports these days in terms of the money involved both for the players and the the punters on the sidelines. But I would much rather see a return to the, I guess, the general attitude that the umpire's decision is final and that's sort of... Well, I mean, like, I have real issues with if you're going to use it and they come back and say, well, that's inconclusive. It's like, you, if you're going mm. to do it, you, you, you don't half-ass it. Yeah. That's the thing that that probably annoys me the most about it is that people are willing to... We're, go, we're going to institute this, but we're not going to put in all the mechanisms in place to ensure that we get the correct decision 100% of the time. I don't have an issue with it if it's going to guarantee that you get the decision right 100%. That's never going to happen. But if it's that being the case, if it's never going to happen, then don't do it. Yeah, because what it's ultimately doing is eventually it's going back to the original umpire's decision, but it's completely undermining their credibility and authority in the process. That's part of the issue I have. Mm. If you're going to overrule something and you're 100% certain that you can get the decision right, then do it. And in a timely manner too. That's the other yeah. important thing. The Tyson Goldsack thing, I, um, I actually thought it was a goal. And I didn't see any evidence with regards to what had happened that would suggest otherwise. Mm. There, and I think that that's sometimes lost in it all. It's, I, 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 yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's, that's a really good example because given how long they took, yeah. how much of a delay there was, look, the umpire's standing but, right there. I say, back your umpires in. Yeah. Tell, tell him to make the call. And I would say, you know, the, the odd dodgy decision, that, that's life, you know? That's yeah, part of absolutely. the game. The, the thing about umpiring is, is inver- and, you know, it's been this way since Adam was a boy. Invariably, that stuff evens out over the course mm. of the game. I'd be more concerned about improving the standard and quality of umpires yeah. rather than trying to give them as many gadgets and trinkets to assist them. As that is that is a very, very good point. Mm. And I think that the problem you have is, is that you create these umpires who become dependent on technology. And a, you well, know, even dependent, but I guess they're always cognizant of it. Perfectly, perfectly emphasised in the recent West Indies Australian series when they mm. actually lost half an hour of the game because they couldn't get the DRS yeah. system yeah, working. Yeah, what a fuck. <laughs> you know, no, the, you know, it's it's crazy. Mm. It should that's not how it should be. And as I say, I, I don't have a problem with it in principle, but I want one hundred percent accuracy. If you can't give me one hundred percent accuracy, forget about it. Yeah. Deal with the errors and move forward. So, yeah, I guess my counter-argument is you're never going to get 
100% accuracy and at the expense of trying to, you're undermining the umpire's authority and you're introducing unnecessary and frankly really bloody frustrating delays in the, in the, in the flow of the game particularly for the cricket reviews where they'll spend three minutes trying to work out whether the ball's pitched in line and, and that sort of tiny, you know, fraction of a millimetre decision. Oh. It just it detracts from the flow and the enjoyment of the game. The the, uh, the whole umpire's call thing really annoys me too. It's what, out 99% of the <laughs> decisions come back umpire's call, really. Yeah, it's all right. Well, if you just happen to be... It just happens to be the side of the coin that you're on. Like, you could argue that that's not a full referral. You had a good you had good reason to refer it because if mm. the umpire had actually said not out instead of out, you wouldn't be out. Yeah. And, and more to the point, if there were no referrals, you'd be less cranky about the decision. Like, yeah. if you did, you know, find out afterwards, yeah. oh, you know, it was just clipping the top of the bales, say. Yeah. So, well, you know, that one's gone against me. Whereas the way it's sort of emphasised now and said, oh, yeah. look, it's hitting one millimetre of it, so yeah. the out decision stands, I think it's actually more frustrating for the players and fans. Yeah. So, I, I agree. It's, but, I mean, that's a whole other story, but... I think at least the ICC are, are trying to do things the right way. They haven't Which quite... Which is a first for them. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's right. They're, I think that they admit that it's still pretty much a work in progress. Mm. Um, I think the AFL kind of threw it in on a whim and they hadn't done the, the necessary due diligence to ensure that they were getting this, all these things right. And, you know, the coaches coming out during the week and taking shots at it and some of the players coming out and taking shots at it, deservedly so. Yeah. And to be honest, I think that was... The main reason why they would have brought it in was because, oh, you know, um, Tom Hawkins shot on goal in a grand final actually brushed the post. Dimitri will be sitting there going, oh, we absolutely can't have people criticising us for issues like that. Yeah. Whereas instead, I'd say by bringing it in, they're actually <laughs> directing more criticism and, and more discussion of, of the issue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... Anyway, uh, as a bit of a transition, I think we might be better off doing that as a as a separate podcast. We, the iPod from Hell's starting to gather a little bit of momentum, and um, so as a consequence of that, we've, we're going to go with a little bit of a scattergun approach and put a few contributions up there this week. Uh, so that'll be the second podcast coming up. So we'll be jumping from six to seven. It's a momentous occasion for us. Hopefully, yes. I yeah. think we've worn Billy out. He's uh, he's resting in the corner now, so he's he's good for about fifteen minutes of quality podcasting. It seems and then he's same could be said for us, really. But well, yeah, I, I was about <laughs> to we say that. I was going to say it's probably thirteen more minutes than I've been able to contribute thus far. So uh, uh, we'll see you in podcast number two.